0: Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman.
1: This is Jordan Goodman, your host. Welcome to uh, the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is uh, Ken Fisher. Uh, he's a four times uh, New York Times best-selling author, uh, Forbes columnist, uh, CEO of Fisher Investments. Welcome to the show, Ken.
2: Thanks for having me back, Jordan. It's always good to be with you. You do a great job.
1: Great to be with you again here. Um, so your latest book is called Markets Never Forget, But People Do, uh, How Your Memory is Costing You Money and Why This Time Isn't Different. Uh, why do you see the need to uh, do this particular book at this time?
2: Well, there's two points. One, I've done a lot of books before, and suddenly I realized that An important point that I had never covered is that our memories are particularly worse when it comes to investing than they are on most things, and we don't actually realize that. And secondarily, that leads into this notion, which... Uh, society has come to over and over and over again in history. Which is this time it's different. Which, as Sir John Templeton, uh, long deceased, legendary investor, once famously said, are the four most dangerous words in the English language. And the fact is, while it's always different, it's never really that different. And almost all of the things that we think are different, we can actually find in history and learn lessons from. But many of them we've actually been through before, and we forget that we've been through them before because our investing memories are so.
1: What are some of the things that people are saying now that they're saying this is different from the past, that they really aren't different from the past, but they're saying they're different from the past? Uh,
2: There is a very long laundry list of them. But, for example, uh, we've never been this indebted before. We've never seen something like Greece going under before. You can go through a long laundry list. One of the most standard ones, uh, which is not a... You've never seen it before, but it's a you've always seen it before that actually pretty much never happens is the repetitive fear in both 2010 and 2011 of double-dip recession. If you go back to history, double-dip recessions, A, almost never occur, but Every cycle, there's quite a lot of talk about double-dip recession, and this falls into the category of we don't see it very often, but we believe in our memories that we've seen it very often. Uh, another reverse example of how our memories are wrong. Our memories are wrong because we think things we've have never happened before, and then our memories are also wrong because we think things happen all the time that rarely happen.
1: So is, it, is, is there some psychological reason why we do that? We want to put a positive spin on things, we want to put on negative things. I mean, why do our memories overwhelm the facts?
2: Fundamentally, there's one basic reason why our memories want to uh, go haywire on us, which is that we're not set up to do this investing thing. We're set up to do a different thing that people did thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. And we're pretty adept at doing that thing. But if we look at our relative failures correctly in investing, it will make us more despondent and less prone to keep trying. So one of the things that behavioralists has long proven is that we tend to bury our failings by forgetting about them and we tend to forget the times we saw something before and reacted wrong to it because to remember it correctly is to remember the pain of failure, and we'd like to do what behavioralists call shunning regret or pretending that if we had a problem, it was somebody else's fault, we were misled, it wasn't our acuity that was at fault, but some other feature. And so those things that we misjudged before, we just blot them right out of our mind. (laughs) <laughs> Amazing.
1: Now you start the book with what you call the plain old normal, and uh, you talk with start with Templeton's quote. What do you mean by the plain old normal? What is the plain old normal?
2: Well, first. It is normal after any big bear market to have the view that the next 10 years will be dismal because of the new, big, terrible problems that we've never seen before and won't be able to overcome for a very long time that are truly different this time. And therefore, because we're going to have these terrible problems, you should have very low expectations. And in fact, people do until they get off later into the bull market and then they become more optimistic again, which is the normal process, uh, pessimistic, after a bear market, uh, optimistic after a long bull market, and that's the same old normal that we've had before. In fact, one of the points that I make about the alleged new normal, a phrase most recently associated with uh, utterances a couple of years ago by PIMCO, is that that phrase itself is one that you can track back to journalistic history, going on a irregular basis but popping up uh, in main media going back to the 1930s and used always the same way that it's used this time the new normal itself comes in at a particular time in the cycle it doesn't come every cycle we've seen it many times before it's always used as it's used this time and it itself is part of the same old normal
1: part of the uh this old normal i guess is the uh the myth i would guess you would say of the jobless recovery uh is that what people have been saying now and is that in fact a myth
2: Well, there's two different myths that are in parallel here. One of them is that unemployment is different. That's one. And then the parallel one is the one about the jobless recovery. And the two tend to play against each other normally in history. Every cycle, we believe that unemployment is acting worse than it normally does in the cycle. And in fact, in this cycle, while unemployment, because the recession was bigger, got to be higher than other recent recessions except for the 1981-82 recession, the way unemployment has behaved... Uh, as it's moved through the cycle, has been exactly like it always has, a point that people never believe and they never go back to check on. The fact is unemployment has always been a late-lagging indicator. It always peaks after the recession's over, uh, stays rigidly high for a long time, and then comes down slowly for a long time before it starts to drop rapidly. And that's exactly the way it's behaving this time, in fact, in the exact progression relative to the cycle that we've seen time after time after time, and I give you those data in the book. People never look at that. The jobless recovery is a somewhat different feature. When we look at the GDP-based or employment-based growth off the bottom, this cycle is the slowest in the post-World War II uh, period when you look out 30 months off the bottom. On the other hand, and that's, that's true, we're remembering that correctly. What's not true that we're remembering incorrectly is that the statistical difference between this one and the last two is statistically insignificant the last three economic recoveries have all been a huge notch below all of the earlier ones and the last three are all within a hair's whisker of each other and and we don't get that right we've made a distinction that doesn't really have a meaning and yet if you were to read the media you would believe that it's a huge distinction with a huge meaning and so again i make the point that we tend to remember these things badly and we tend not to go back to check and see if they're true.
1: You have a table in your book uh, about unemployment and S&P 500 returns showing that stocks lead and jobs lag. What are the investment implications of that as to when it's a good time to be investing relative to unemployment?
2: Well, this is again a really hard one, but basically when unemployment goes starts going through the roof, that's the time you actually want to make sure you're fully invested. And as long as unemployment remains really, really high, history is really clear you'll want to be fully invested or as fully invested as you would ever be based on your personal circumstances. And obviously, different people vary for all kinds of reasons in terms of how much they might ever be invested at the maximum. But whatever you would be invested in stocks at the maximum, you want to put the hammer down and go hard when you see unemployment go through the roof because the history of unemployment going through the roof leading to stocks going through the roof, is just one of those very high correlations.
1: Is there a reason for we, that?
2: We, I mean, ironically, that- of course, Jordan, is exactly the reverse of the way the normal person wants to think, what the normal person wants to say, and we've heard this a lot in this economic expansion so far, is you can't expect things like the stock market to do well while unemployment's so high. Actually, when unemployment's been rising and high, that's exactly when you can't expect stocks to do great.
1: And is that the reason for that? That when unemployment's high, then there's fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus, the Federal Reserve lowers interest rates to counter it, and that's what boosts the stock market? Is that what makes sense?
2: Well, you could argue that. Uh, you could argue that because we have so much phobia about unemployment, uh, the stimulatory features that uh, governments might use uh, tend to then replace <laughs> the stock market and push stocks higher. Um, that's one argument. On the other hand, another argument might be that unemployment really isn't what people think it is, and this is another part where our memories don't work right. What people tend to think is that unemployment is some number that's sort of like, the number of people that don't have a job divided by the labor force. Whereas in reality, unemployment is not that at all and never has been in America or any other developed nation. Unemployment is the number of people at a point in time that are looking for a job divided by the number of people that have a job and are looking for a job. So in an expansion, as looking goes up, because you quit looking years ago, but now that your neighbor got a job, you start looking. When you start looking, that actually makes unemployment go up and stay high, and it's very hard for people to get that notion that you're not going to get unemployment going down early in an expansion because people start looking for a job as they see their neighbor, their friend, their uh, cousin get a job, so that motivates them to get off the couch and look, too. That's the same part that the actual economy, it's not that they're about to stimulate it, so the economy's actually going.
1: Now, lately, we've had a lot of people, so-called discouraged workers have been increasing dramatically, 300,000 or so a month. So that's, but despite that, the unemployment rate's been falling. So how does that connect? Because we are having more people not looking for work
2: lately. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is we are now in a very, uh, interesting world because there is this perception that it's a jobless recovery. GDP is actually at all-time highs. Firms have been doing a phenomenally Efficient and productive job of doing more for less. And the effect of all of that is that that's boosting profitability, but at the same point in time it's providing further image of the sort of jobless recovery, which is also parallel to the feature of the last couple of cycles. So you don't have the tremendous robust Uh, tendency to pull people off the couch that you had three, four, five, eight economic cycles ago, but is similar to the last two economic cycles. So
1: you're saying this time isn't different in, in what you
2: just described compared to the past two or three cycles? It's not different in any material way. It's always different and it's never different. It's got lots of particulars that are different, but in a big macro sense, it's not really very different than the last Cycles. Uh, it's a little bit more subdued. The last two cycles are more subdued than all the prior cycles. Uh, why? We could debate that. You could argue that America's just more, more mature. You could argue, if you wanted to, that it's about demographics. Uh, you could argue all kinds of things. But there's this inescapable fact, which is the fact behind the book, which is the fact that everybody says it doesn't make it true. And. Number two, our memories tend to be terrible about all these things, and we as people rarely go back to check to see if things that we think are true actually are. And one of the points that's underlying the book is when somebody tells you something that you believe, you might actually want to go back and check and see if it's really true, because pretty often we say things that we commonly believe are true, like this always happens, but except when you go back and look in history, it almost never happens, or this is the first time this has happened, and it's new and different, and it's really important, therefore, when in fact you see it happening all the darn time. One of the points that I make in the book is that things like debt, uh, the interest payments on government debt as a percent of either GDP or U.S. government tax revenues are actually half the levels they were 20 years ago for a long time, and yet people think they're at all-time highs the actual facts, people really want to blanch off because if you can be wrong about something that basic, think about all the other things you can be wrong about. It's really more comfortable to not remember correctly. Very good. Okay. All right. We're going to take a break.
1: Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. Um, My guest this hour is Ken Fisher. Uh, His new book is called Markets Never Forget, How Your Memory is Costing You Money and Why This Time Isn't Different. We'll be back after this.
3: If you lead a team of any kind, you need to listen to this show. Tune in to Leading with Emotional Intelligence, hosted by Esther Orioli. Esther provides you with the tools and techniques you need to harness the power of EQ to stop setting goals and start changing behaviors in your organization. Get the latest concepts in EQ from a top-of-the-house perspective and have your questions answered on air. Leading with Emotional Intelligence is broadcast live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Is your business or organization operating as efficiently as it should be? There are five basic dynamics present in every workplace that can effectively derail any organization. Be sure to listen for What's Leadership Got to Do With It? with Rick Tiemann. Rick and his guests will discuss how you can manage these five dynamics and improve your leadership skills. Leaders that want a successful business can't afford to miss this program. What's Leadership Got to Do With It's broadcast live every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success, with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
0: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
1: Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Ken Fisher. Uh, he's written several books. He's the CEO of Fisher Investments based in California. His latest book is called Markets Never Forget, But People Do how your memory is costing you money, and why this time isn't different. Welcome back to the show, Ken.
2: Thanks for having me, Jordan. I appreciate it.
1: You say people get fooled by averages. Uh, Why don't you briefly describe how people get fooled by averages?
2: Well, you know, the way our brains really work on most things that relate to investing derive from our very long history and experience in the hunter-gatherer and agricultural world. And there, things like temperature, rainfall, amount of snow you have, tend to be mean reverting. And if you want to forecast, you know, pretty much your best forecast is what happens on average in the past. Stocks are extremely, and not just stocks, but all forms of securities, are typically extraordinarily volatile, and returns have very wide variance, and so the average of returns is actually not very consistent with what happens most of the time. If you look, for example, at stocks, very high returns and very low returns happen much more frequently than the average of all returns. So if you bet on what happens on average to be what happens most normally, you actually end up wrong. If you bet on either really high or really low, you have a statistically higher likelihood of being right than if you bet on the average. That's a part that's really hard for our brains to process because we come from this place where for thousands of years, if you took natural phenomena and bet on the averages recurring, that's actually what you got most of the time.
1: You talk in this chapter about the V-bounce. What do you mean by the V-bounce and how is an investor supposed to anticipate when there's going to be a V-bounce?
2: Well, first, before we get to what is it, it happens much more of the time than not, overwhelmingly so. When we look at major market movements, not 100% of the time, but more than three-quarters of the time, the rate of descent in a major decline is almost the mirror image of the subsequent rate of ascent. This is virtually impossible for our brain to get because the way our brain wants to think, the bigger and uglier the decline, the worse the circumstances must have been. Therefore, off the bottom, the longer it must take to get back to where we once upon a time had a peak. The fact of the matter is, in major down moves and securities. Uh, equities or not, the back part of the decline is almost sheer sentiment, psychology, and panic. And that which goes down bounces back just about as fast as it goes down in the initial stages of the ascent. So if you kind of think of the last one-third of the drop in a market move, that's a big market move. The bounce back after that tends to be just about as fast as the down move was, and humans are really almost never prepared for that. They're almost never prepared for the notion that you really can't time the bottom very precisely, and once you bounce back the other way, it moves really, really fast. People say at those kinds of times things like, well, it would be a good idea to wait for a future that's more clear. Let's wait until x y and z happen and the dust settles by the time you've done all those things of course the markets moved up 30 percent
1: so this is what happened last time we had the big down move in 2008 and then the market bottomed in march
2: 2009
1: and had this huge that was
2: the most recent v we've seen is that right if you take the move in the back part of 2009 it's almost exactly the same rate of ascent as the drop from the fall of 2008. That, as a concept, is virtually impossible for the human brain to get. You can go back and you can see it over and over and over again in history. This is another one of the examples of we've lived through it a million times, but we always believe when it happens this next time that it's different. And, of course, it's never really different.
1: So you have something you call the great humiliator, or TGH. Um, Describe what that is, and how should people deal with the great humiliator?
2: Well... For decades now, I have described the stock market as the great humiliator that lives as a near-spiritual, near-all-powerful entity that exists for one purpose and one purpose only, which is to humiliate as many people as possible for as many dollars as possible for as long a time period as possible. And I've always described it as an exceptionally capable humiliator. It's an equal-opportunity humiliator. It doesn't care if you're a man or a woman or what your skin color or your national origin is. It doesn't care if you're old or young, wants to get you, wants to get your friends wants to get your mother, wants to get your grandmother. It would prefer to get me... Uh, rather than the average person because I'm wealthier than the average person by a lot and I'm more visible so getting me is a better target than getting somebody that's less but, but it's greedy so it wants to get them all and the way it does that is by framing things in ways that our brain isn't really set up to receive well so we make the wrong decisions at the wrong times and repeat the same mistakes over and over again going back to my point that A, we're not really set up to do this kind of investing stuff naturally, we're set up to engage in a different world and this world of investing in securities is foreign to the way our brain thinks and then secondarily because our memories about investing are so terrible we don't really learn from our mistakes and that's a reason to go back and look at the past to kind of think of history not as History always will tell you what will happen because it won't. But history does tell you the kind of things that almost never happen, the kind of things that happen really regularly and helps you figure out the odds because in the long term, this is an odds game. It's not a certainties game. And yet our brain wants to go against us because the great humiliator is sitting out there kind of baiting us on with things that our brains will fall for.
1: So when you're dealing with clients um, and they have the same emotions that everybody else does, and markets are dropping sharply. Let's, let's bring us back to the fall of 2008 into March 2009. And it looks like the end of the world is coming in Armageddon. How do you deal with clients saying this is a fantastic buying opportunity? I know it looks like the world's falling apart, but we've seen this many times. A V is coming. How do you deal with people's anxieties in a c- case like that?
2: Well, first, and your uh, listeners may not fully appreciate this, but Uh, I run one of the larger independent investment advisory firms in the country. We have uh, a little over 25,000 high net worth clients, and we also have a large institutional uh, department. And our... Service people who are handling the accounts and talking to them on a daily basis are really trying to feed them the same kinds of information on a regular basis, not just when there's a crisis, but before there's a crisis, during the crisis and after the crisis. That's the kind of information that's in this book, Markets Never Forget, so that they come to understand that their memories aren't so good. There's some good likelihood that that thing that you read about in the newspapers that people are telling you this is the first time it's happened or it always happens, pretty good likelihood that's wrong. Uh, maybe we should then talk to the people at... Uh, Fisher Investments to find out, are there examples of when this has happened before? So really the conditioning of the client for market volatility is something that's an ongoing issue. It's not just something that you do during the downturn and you're trying to do it long beforehand. Now here's the real dismal part. The real dismal part is that people inherently are sort of what you could think of as slow learners. If you think of the average C student in school – The average C student in school needs a fair amount of repetition because in the class they're getting kind of 70% right and they're missing 30%. To get over that, they need repetition and repetition and repetition and repetition. So when you're dealing with clients, the best thing you can do is be spending a lot of time talking to them about how these things work when there isn't the crisis, when there Mm -hmm. isn't the big down move or the big up move, so that they're actually prepared to understand and accept the information when those big moves are occurring. The inherent nature of our brain is to actually want to Work when it comes to investing in intangible securities against our own best interests, and it's very hard for us to accept that.
1: So, is, and that, is that in fact what happened in your case? Is that people were so well prepared that when the lows were hit, being hit in March two thousand nine, people were eager to jump in, even though it looked like the world was coming to an end?
2: I would never say that. Eager <laughs> is a word that uh, eager is a word that is impossible to describe at a time like that. Let me just describe that in a way that. Um, it will sound brutish, and many of your listeners won't empathize with. And while I empathize with your listeners, I'm kind of looking at this from a 35,000-foot landscape. Mm -hmm. I kind of think in terms of what percentage of our clients are firing us at a moment in time. And I know Mm -hmm. at our size (laughs) that we're always having clients fire us, and my goal is to have our termination rate be as low as it can possibly be all the time. What happens at a time like that is that the termination rate goes up no matter what you do. Mm -hmm. There's no way that's not going to happen. And these are the clients that are saying, you know, I signed on to go on the ride, but I don't care what direction where the ride's going. I want off. I can't take it anymore. And so for a firm like ours, basically in that time period, briefly, we saw our termination rate double. Mm -hmm. And Uh, and, and I'm very proud of our termination rate compared to any major firm in the industry. But the fact of the matter is, at times like that, I think your listeners know, people freak out. And they yeah. freak out because there is cacophony of sound telling them that it's different this time. We've never seen this stuff. The world's coming to an end. Now's the time you've got to get off and go. And you can come up with all kinds of reasons that people would say that. Uh, some people with a particular set of persuasions you know, are going to believe these things, those things, the other things. You can remember all the people that said the stock market cannot bounce back uh, when Mr. Obama's president. But, oh, by the way, it did. Uh, all those kinds of things, and people buy into the ones they want to buy into. We yeah, all the people, it's just no way in the world. Very good.
1: All right, we're going to go for a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Ken Fisher. Uh, he's the CEO of Fisher Investments. Uh, his new book is called "Markets Never Forget, but People Do: uh, How Your Memory Is Costing You Money and Why This Time Isn't Different." We'll be back after this.
3: The path to leadership excellence begins here. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
1: Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Ken Fisher. Uh, He's the CEO of Fisher Investments, and his new book is called Markets Never Forget, But People Do. Uh, Welcome back to the show, Ken.
2: Thanks for having me again. I appreciate it very much. You do a great job.
1: You have a uh, chapter about volatility uh, where you say volatility is normal and volatile. Now, last year in 2011, there were many, many days of moves of 100 points or more, 2 or 3% or more, and we ended up basically where we started, uh, but just the volatility itself freaked people out of uh, participating at all. How should people be dealing with volatility in today's markets based on what you've seen from the past?
2: Well, volatility is an interesting subject in these ways. First, as you alluded to, it makes people uncomfortable. It's a little bit like flying in a plane that's getting a lot of turbulence. People just have a hard time being comfortable and accepting the notion that, the turbulence in the plane is not uh, somehow predictive of some problem that the plane's gonna have. Uh, They have a hard time going to sleep. They have a hard time being comfortable that they're going to get there. They have a hard time enjoying their food, whatever it is. Volatility in markets is similar in that regard. And again, going back to the points that I've made in the last two segments and tied to the nature of my book, Markets Never Forget, but people do, our memories about volatility are truly terrible. One of the points that I make in the book is that it is normal in history to think that now, whenever now is, we're having all-time record volatility and before, volatility has never been nearly this bad. And to point to anecdotes that support that, when in fact volatility is something that you can statistically measure pretty clearly, and volatility in history has tended to come and go. And while volatility was much higher in 2011 than it was, let's say, in 2004, 5, 6, is the longest period of low volatility in market history and we move from a period of below average volatility, which then if you go back and read the media people said was the largest volatility we'd ever had, to periods now where the volatility has gone from very, very low historically to well above average, but far from the highest volatility we've ever measured, yet people always feel it as the highest. The reality of volatility is the way we think is when the market's down, it's volatile, and when it's up, it's good. And they don't get the notion that up and down volatility are kind of flip sides of the same record, and you can't get an up-a-lot market without volatility any more than you don't get a a down-a-lot market without volatility. It's just a different form of volatility. And so seeing volatility we tend to think is predictive of a crash, like in an airplane, whereas in reality, and it frightens us and it makes us freakier. And yet, the flip side of that coin is it's often precedent to the beginning of an up move, just as we've seen from uh, October of last year through the last few days where the markets had one heck of a run. You wouldn't get that up a lot move without the volatility. It, it's, it's a funny feature because people fear volatility, and they can't see it as a dual-edged sword, and they always think recent volatility is the most it's ever been.
1: So what is a good way for people to track that, to follow the VIX or something? When the VIX goes way up, uh, that's meaning there's more volatility, and then therefore a bull market should happen when that starts coming down? What's the way to actually track it?
2: Uh, well, if, if I were anybody, me included, I wouldn't try to do any of that. Uh, First, one point that uh, I've made repetitively for a long time and goes back to an academic study I did uh, years and years and years ago with uh, my buddy Mayor Stopman from Santa Clara University uh, is simply that... The VIX is not actually predictive of anything. It's a coincident indicator. It's not a leading indicator. It doesn't tell you what will happen. People that try to trade off of it as if it was a leading indicator actually end up losing money, not making money. And so I wouldn't try to do those kinds of things. The fact of the matter is when uh, the VIX numbers... Uh, move to extremes, it's really a function of people having already gotten complacent or already gotten freaked out. And it's something else that will move them away from that freak out or away from that complacency that will drive the market. But what I would just simply say is to think through when the market is a big down move, uh, do you actually believe you know something other people don't know that's causal to this turning into a bear market? And if you don't, you should be holding on. The only real basis in finance theory for believing that you can time the market, which m- certainly most people cannot, is to believe that somehow, some way, you know something important that other people don't know because the inherent nature of the markets, which people never want to accept, is that markets have already priced in the things we all discuss, debate, talk about. Uh, let me give you an example of one that, that I'm sure. pretty confident of. Right now as we speak, uh, we're coming off of a period of uh, the end of 2011, where there's been quite a lot of discussion about problems in European finance, and quite a lot of people believe that this will happen, that will happen, the other will happen. fact that we can know is that if you look at all that pig's debt, uh, 80% of the money value of it is a combination of Italy and Spain, and 80% of that is Italy. So, when you look at that, two-thirds of the money effectively on a money-weighted basis, that's the pig's concern is Italy. Uh, if you look at things like Greece and Portugal, Greece is, in my mind, going to the Dickens no matter what, but that's neither here nor there. It's small, and Greece has gone bankrupt before. You can measure that. You can measure the effects of Greece going bankrupt before. Greece will go bankrupt again, hopefully two, three more times in my lifetime, and hopefully two to three more times in your lifetime. And... Should you live so long? I should hope. And the fact of the matter is that it's really Italy that's the elephant in the living room. But when you look at Italy's debt, it's mostly rolling over this year, and most of that happens in February, March, and April. Now, the important part about that is if stock markets were to go down because that was to be a terrible event, they'd be going down right now. One of the parts that people have a very difficult time with is that markets move in advance of the event. They don't wait for the event. Yeah. So when you look at that Italian debt rollover being concentrated in February, March, and April, and you see the markets going through the roof from October to present, and being very strong in the first half of January, you say to yourself really simply, we're not going to have a problem with Italy. Because if we are going to have a problem with Italy, stocks wouldn't be doing well now. So uh, the, let, me the market you, is let, let me give you a perfectly parallel so. example of that from history. You remember very well, Jordan when Y2K was coming on us. Yes, right. And all kind of people were afraid we're going to lose power and have all kind of global meltdown and what have you. You knew that would not be a problem coming into the end of the year if you just simply knew that the stock market had been strong in October, November, and December, because if actually Y2K was going to be a problem, the stock market wouldn't have been strong in October, November, and December of 1999 going into the face of Y2K. This is something that's very hard for the human brain to get, which is that the market moves before the events. It doesn't wait for after. So those people that say things like, let's wait until this clears up, well, that's all fine and well, but you miss a huge move when you wait until this clears up.
1: So are you saying that the markets never get surprised, that the markets you know, are anticipating things, and if you listen to the market, uh, what it's doing as opposed to what people are saying, you'll be in good shape. I mean, an example of, to me, a big surprise would be when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. People did not think that was going to happen. They thought they'd get saved, and that was a surprise, and the markets fell sharply after that.
2: I think you can find lots of surprises in history. I think that the things that people spend a lot of time talking about and debating about for a long time tend to be priced into the market. Yeah. Uh, now, you haven't- the, 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 the fact of the matter is that the longer and the more people talk about it, fret about it, worry about it, the less likely it is to have subsequent pricing over markets. The more something comes on from no place, with some exceptions, and I'll come back to some exceptions in a minute, there's some types of exceptions where even when the market surprises, it doesn't seem to have any real power. But for the most part, if we've been debating it, analyzing it, scrutinizing it, fretting about it, it's already priced. And if it happens, market doesn't tend to have much reaction. If it doesn't happen, and we've all thought it would, the market tends to do well. Uh, uh, the exception example to that is things like, Earthquakes, massive tornadoes, and other forms of natural disaster. You mm-hmm. remember when uh, Hurricane Katrina happened. Actually, right. that day, the market went up. Uh, when you have things like uh, the, the problems in Japan last year, the global market didn't react badly to that whatsoever. Of course, Japan was hurt by it, but the global market didn't react badly to that at all. Um, when you think of major earthquakes, major tornadoes, major forms of natural disaster, these things fundamentally don't end up rippling over and having this kind of market surprise impact that you might think, even though they are always total surprises.
1: I, I want, another one that came to mind for me would be the, uh, the Russian collapse and the long-term capital collapse in uh, 1998. I guess that surprised people. That kind of came out of the blue and happened, kind of a black swan event, I guess you might say.
2: Well, but let's think about those for a second and I agree with you, uh the long-term capital uh phenomena which was 1998 uh is one of those kinds of things that we see often within a market correction but not a bear market. Mm-hmm. Every every correction has something that goes on in it which we I don't mean, I just to back up. Correction is typically defined as a downward move that's 10 to 20%, but not more than 20%, and doesn't have a lot of duration, whereas a bear market is defined as something greater than 20% with a fair amount of duration. So 1998, when the long-term capital thing came, was really a, a very few months of sharp down move, leading to a just about exactly 20% drop, followed by a bounce back that came just as fast, and 1998 overall was a positive year but the collapse of long-term capital management leads to a fear of panic, 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 and these kinds of market corrections within a bull market have traditionally happened often, but don't lead to bear markets. They just lead to that short-term correction, which is sort of the corrective phase before the next leg up of the bull market.
1: You have a whole chapter on what you call the secular bear, uh, not being an accurate uh, way of looking at things. Why is that? Because people will say we're in a secular bear market, and that's different from cyclical. People get confused by all these things. What, what is the right way to look at that?
2: Well, secular bear markets are typically thought of as this long period where stocks do badly and uh, you want to just ride them out in theory and then get involved with the market again after they're over. Uh, the the problem with that from my view is several fold. One uh, too many people tend to look at markets the wrong way in that they look at it with some index like the Dow that's a price-weighted index and doesn't include dividends, and they don't see maybe that it's not as low a long-term return as they think it is. This is most commonly associated with the so-called secular bear that existed between 1966 and 1982, where they always say it was a flat market, but if you actually look at it, instead of with the Dow, with a correctly calculated total return index, the market was up something like 7% a year on average, below average, but not disastrous. The other side of the coin is within every time period like that, there are these huge up moves and huge down moves that are big enough to drive almost any mere mortal crazy. And the bull market sucks you in, the bear market purges you out. And the reason that we look at the last 10 years and we say, boy, the last 10 years have been terrible is because we – just went through, not too many years ago, a big, long, big bear market. The flip side of that coin is those periods that have been like that lead to the beginnings of widespread utterances about secular bear moving forward as if 10 bad years predicted 10 more bad years, whereas in reality, when you look at history, as I give you the data in the book markets, never forget, but people do, decades of bad performance have always been followed by markets that have been good to great. Uh, that is you can't tell whether they'll be good or whether they'll be great but when we've had 10 years where the markets have been disappointing the next 10 years have always been not disappointing and in uh, some variation flavor style or or a delivery of some portion of goodness versus gangbusterness so our brain wants to say boy you know we've had a bad time therefore we should have a secular bear market in fact Any 10-year period you have moving forward is going to have a lot of big up moves and a lot of big down moves, and those are going to be enough to drive you crazy, but after 10 years that have been disappointing, you pretty much almost always get 10 years that aren't disappointing.
1: Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Ken Fisher. He's the CEO of Fisher Investments, and his latest book is called Markets Never Forget, But People Do. We'll be back after this.
3: Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
4: If you are looking for creative ways to improve your bottom line, Tune in to Make Your Move with Alan and Brian Bolio. Their proven track record of helping businesses enhance their profitability will provide the basis for a forum about actionable items based on a business person's perspective. The program will be business talk, but with an economic context, so you'll know how to stay ahead of the game. Make Your Move is broadcast live every Monday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
1: My guest this hour is Ken Fisher, uh, CEO of Fisher Investments. Uh, his, book, his newest book is called Markets Never Forget, But People Do How Your Memory Is Costing You Money, and Why This Time Isn't Different. Welcome back to the show, Ken.
2: It's always good to be with you, Jordan.
1: You have a, a chapter on debt and deficient thinking. And let's briefly kind of talk about that because people are consumed with the national debt. We're at $15 trillion and this is going to crush us and all this. What is the right way to think about these things?
2: uh there's several right ways to think about it and many more wrong ways to think about it one is to think about uh, net debt the amount of debt the government doesn't own as a percent of U.S. GDP. Most people think of gross debt, but the biggest holder of U.S. government debt now and pretty much all of our lives has been the U.S. government itself. And the way to think about debt is the amount of debt the government's issued that it itself in some one of its various pockets doesn't own. And there the number looks less onerous. And then compare that to history and compare that to other countries. And there it doesn't look quite so bad. And the other is to think in terms of the interest cost on that debt as a percent percent. percent of either the country's GDP or the interest cost as a percent of the country's tax revenues. And if those burdens are very high compared to the past, well, maybe that's onerous. If they're not so high compared to the past, maybe they're not so onerous. So the way our brains tend to work is we tend to think debt's bad, more debt's worse, too much debt's go to hell. And society regularly through history goes through these periods of what you could view as debt phobia, and when we do that, the people that are debt phobic uh, tend to be Unwilling to contemplate that there might actually not be a debt problem. But as I mentioned earlier in the show a couple of segments back, when you look, for example, at the United States on U.S. government debt interest payments as a percent of U.S. uh, GDP or U.S. government tax revenues are currently running less than half what they were 20 to 30 years ago and therefore at these levels cannot possibly be some form of threat. You need much higher interest rates to create that threat. Might we get those in the future? Yes, we might. Would that take a long time to get to from here? My opinion is yes, but I could be wrong. But you got to construct that world to see it be a problem, not to see it as a problem today where we already are, which is the way many see it. This is, again, a problem of our memories not wanting to see this stuff correctly because we want to assume that we know what it is without actually analyzing it in a lot of detail.
1: You also have a chapter on what you call long-term love and other investing errors where people basically fall in in love with a particular kind of stock or investing style. Uh, What's wrong with uh, falling in love with with, the investing style?
2: Well, I'm, I'm all in favor of love. Uh, There is no reason not to love. The, The dilemma is that you need to actually see things realistically at the same time. And when we think within equities, the long-term returns of basically every category of equity, although not every stock, of every category of equity end up being very similar if you give them 30 years. What happens along the 30 years is that some become very, very popular for a while and then after that perform badly. Some become very unpopular for a while and then perform very well. And the way our brains work is we tend to fall in love with them for five to ten years, and then when they haven't worked out well, bail out of them at the wrong time just before they start to work well. This is not just true of categories within equity, but it's actually true of categories of securities. So when you actually look at the inflows and outflows out of most categories, most investors historically have been money losers, and that includes whether you're talking about types of stocks, whether you talk about gold, whether you talk about bonds, where money's flowing in and out is actually a pretty good sign of what doesn't perform. And yet, the way most people think when something's performed really well for 10 years, that's about the time they fall in love with it.
1: So, what would you say people are falling in love with now? Where are the excesses, and what are the things that they uh, have fallen out of love with that probably are undervalued?
2: Uh, I don't think there's any doubt that the major excess in uh, modern times, uh, when I say modern times, I mean the last few years, has been the propensity to want to own government debt. The uh feature is that people have been scared of equities. They've been scared of other things, and they're much more concerned in their mind in what you could think of as the return of their investment than they are the return on their investment. And so money has been flowing into bond funds, into bonds at these low rates. However, if you look out 10, 15 years, you can't possibly do well, and bonds have done great for 30 years. To most people, that's a sign they're good. To me, that's a sign that they pretty much – don't have much of a long-term future from here. They might do great for the next year or so. I don't really know. That's a speculative bet we could debate about. But when you look out 10 years, so now 15 years, now it's pretty hard to figure out how you make a great return on a U.S. government 10-year bond.
1: And how about gold? Has gold uh, had too big a move? Is that too popular these days?
2: You're going to hate my answer to this, Jordan. When I was Uh young, I did gold badly so many times, so many times. That I made a solemn vow decades ago to never have a futuristic forecast about gold ever in the name of good luck, kind of, kind of giving my soul to the devil. Mm-hmm. do well selling my soul to the devil, and I've stuck to that, and I've never had a future forecast for gold ever since, and I've had pretty good luck, so I keep with that. Gold is a tricky thing to do, and people who are gold fanatics at any point in time don't think it's a tricky thing to do. But one of the features about gold that I document and markets never forget is that about 85% of the months of history – in the long term gold has lost money. Gold's made all of its return out of about 15% of its months. So my point is Most things like stocks are positive a larger percentage of the time than that. Bonds are positive even a larger percentage of the time than stocks. If you can time gold successfully and know how to deal with gold successfully and don't get discouraged after it's had three years of bad returns and know what to do with gold and are able to do it well, you don't really need any advice from me.
1: You also have a chapter about what you call politicking, about how political – Elections affect investors and what are the misperceptions about that and what is the right way to look at political changes since we're in election year?
2: It's a very complicated subject, but the first thing that most everyone needs to do that almost no one's ready to do is take your own political biases and just bury them, whatever they are. If you're a liberal, if you're a conservative, I don't care what you are, I don't care what you believe. Your biases hurt you when you try to analyze markets. And the fact of the matter is we can say some things. For example, if you look at U.S. history, markets have done badly when we've initially elected a Democrat. And Republicans tend to think Democrats would be bad for markets, although we know, for example, in 2009, in the inaugural year, not the election year, in the electoral year, the election leading up to President Obama was a disastrous year, but the inaugural year, going back to that V discussion we had earlier, was great. When we re-elect Democrats, however, in re-election years, when we have reelected Democrats, the election years have been great. It's a point that people miss. On the other hand, when we initially elect Republicans, in the election year, the markets are great. In the, If we re-elect them, the markets aren't so great. And then there's this other part that Republicans always have a hard time seeing, which is that the history of the inaugural year of Republicans has been truly dismal. That is, the election year when we elect Republicans initially in that first term is great, but then their first year in office, the inaugural year, has been negative for every single one of them, with the exception of George Herbert Walker Bush. All the rest of them you just run down the line and their first year was negative. It's one of those points that's been in our face over and over and over in history, and yet we don't see very good.
1: Well, my guest has been uh, Ken Fisher. Uh, his new book is called Markets Never Forget, What People Do, How Your Memory is Costing You Money and Why This Time Isn't Different. He's got lots of charts and graphs and tables in there that augment these points uh, in much more detail than I could ever get into on this radio show. Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Ken.
2: Thanks for having me, Jordan.
1: And we'll be back again with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now.